First scripture reading today comes from the book of Exodus, chapter 17, the second half of the first verse through the seventh verse. Listen to what God is telling us this morning. They camped at Rephidim, but there was no water for the people to drink. The people quarreled with Moses and said, give us water to drink. Moses said to them, why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? But the people thirsted there for water. And people complained against Moses and said, Why did you bring us out of Egypt to kill us and our children and livestock with thirst? So Moses cried out to the Lord, What shall I do with this people? They are almost ready to stone me. The Lord said to Moses, Go on ahead of the people and take some of the elders of Israel with you. Take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile and go. I will be standing there in front of you on the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come of it, so that the people may drink. Moses did so in the sight of the elders of Israel. He called the place Massa and Meribah, because the Israelites quarreled and tested the Lord, saying, Is the Lord among us or not? The word of the Lord. Our second scripture reading this morning comes to us from the book of John, chapter 4, verses 5 to 21, and also verses 23 to 26. Let's listen again for a word from God. So he came to a Samaritan city called Sychar, near the plot of ground that Jacob had given his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, and Jesus, tired out by his journey, was sitting by the well. It was about noon. A Samaritan woman came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. His disciples had gone into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask a drink of me, a woman of Samaria? Jews do not share things in common with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, sir, you have no bucket and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our ancestor Jacob who gave us this well and with his sons and flocks drank from it? Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but those who drink of the water that I will give them will never be thirsty. The water that I will give will become in them a spring of water gushing up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I may never be thirsty or have to keep coming here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come back. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right to say, I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one that you are now with is not your husband. What you have said is true. 
the woman said to him, Hmm, sir, I see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you say that the place where the people must worship is Jerusalem. Jesus said, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when we will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father seeks such as these to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming, who is called the Christ. When he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Jesus said to her, I am he, the one who is speaking to you. The word of the Lord. Just a quick shout out uh, and expression of gratitude to our liturgist today, Trace Williams. Might not be familiar with his face, he's usually up there doing the live stream, uh, so uh, it's great to have him in the front of the sanctuary with the rest of us this morning. Let's pray together. May the meditations of our hearts together this morning on this Lenten Sunday be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our Redeemer. Amen. This might surprise you because um, I am a wordy person, loquacious even, uh, tend to talk a lot, um, especially on Sunday mornings. But I have to admit to you, I am terrible at small talk. My wife is the queen of the cocktail party. I stand by the cheese and just wait for it to be over. I'm not good at it. Uh, I blame my upbringing. Uh, I was taught as a, as a military kid to look a person in the eye, to smile at them, and to give them a firm handshake. But also I was taught to worry a little too much about whether or not I was being perceived as polite. So I'm thinking about all of these things when I'm doing small talk about, well, about nothing. Uh, and so I'm, I'm really not very good. I, I'm better in my professional kind of conversations talking about, I guess, things that matter, not the weather. Um, but uh, some people are really good at it, and I admire them. Um, yeah, even, even, even a coffee hour for me, it's you know, a little exhausting. I have to go home and take a nap. Just because of the, like, what do I say? How am I doing? Is there something on my, my lip or my teeth? I don't know. Nicholas Epley is a professor of behavioral science at the University of Chicago who carried out a very interesting study on human interaction, specifically the human interaction that we call conversation. Uh, Epley and his colleagues compiled a list of shallow versus intimate conversation starters. Um, some of the shallow ways to start a conversation, uh, think, think coffee hour or cocktail hour, uh, is you walk up to somebody and you say, well, what do you think about today's weather forecast? Or, 
hey, uh, what's, the, what's your favorite TV show you've streamed in the last couple of months? Or perhaps something like, what do you have planned for later this afternoon? On the other hand, they found that some of the more intimate ways to start a conversation, which lead to more meaningful interactions, which we're all looking for, are something like, tell me, what would constitute a perfect day for you? Or, what in your life makes you feel most grateful? Or who in your life makes you feel most grateful? And finally, another example of intimate conversation starters, what's one of the most meaningful memories of your life? And why is it so meaningful to you? Epley's work has shown that even short, meaningful conversations with strangers, not people we already know, people or people we may not know very well, these kinds of conversations improve our sense of well-being and make us feel more connected, not only with others, but with ourselves. I think that, by the way, is the power, one of the powers uh, and, and wonderful things about the way we do new member exploration classes here at PCUM. We ask those kind of meaningful questions. And it's always a little bit awkward to start because we're not used to sort of talking to one another, especially people we don't know very well, at that more, a little bit more deep level, more meaningful level. It's fascinating. But here's what uh, Epley said, as or concluded after this study. They looked at 1,800 people as these 1,800 individuals went through 12 conversational experiments and then recorded the people's reactions afterwards, and Epley concluded that there are two primary reasons why we avoid starting meaningful conversations with strangers, people we don't know very well. He says, and I quote, people greatly overestimate how awkward it's going to be to hold a deep conversation with someone they don't know well, and people routinely underestimate how much other people care about us and what's on our minds. It's fascinating. We overestimate how scary it's going to be to talk to somebody we don't already know. So at coffee hour, we keep talking to people we already know. Don't do that. And we underestimate how much those same people we don't know or don't know very well actually do care about us about how we think, how we feel, if we'll just give them a chance. Like Graham said uh, with the children just now, we tend to hide the truth of ourselves from others. And we do it by anticipating the worst, overestimating how bad it's going to be to be honest with someone, or at least to go to a deeper level with someone, and underestimating that they, the fact that they may actually find value in talking to us. You could say that hiding the truth of ourselves is a major theme in all of our lives, especially Western Protestant Christian people. We're good at the shiny surface. The conversation between Jesus and the Samaritan woman in the fourth chapter of John is a great example of this universal human truth, though. It's not just modern Presbyterian Western people. Early in John's Gospel, somehow this author connects the eternal word made flesh who dwells among us, the creative force of the universe, God 
in whom, through whom, and by whom all things were and are made, John, in an amazing way, connects that reality, that God, with each one of us, with you and with me. And John does it in a very different way than Matthew, Mark, and Luke do. This ingenious scene starts this amazing and unique gospel. Just early on in the fourth chapter, we have this opportunity to know who Jesus is because he tells that woman and through her, us. In the other gospels, he keeps it a secret, especially in Mark. God's self-offering to the universe, to you and me, the creative force that makes the world go, now is meeting us face-to-face at the well. He goes through this town of Sychar in Samaria, and before we even read any farther into this fourth chapter of John, you need to know, as Graham told the kids, that the antagonism between Jews and Samaritans has been going on before this scene and uh, for generations, and it's going to be going on for thousands of years afterward. Check your history. You'll know and remember that the Assyrians conquered the northern part of what is today Israel uh, in the early part of the 8th century BCE, and they carted off about 28,000 Israelites into what was now today Iraq in bondage. But there were some Jews who were left behind in Israel, and they intermarried with the local pagan Assyrians who also had settled there. And over time, that religious practice of their, their kind of Judaism began to differ greatly from what, we, what kind of came down as the, the historical winner kind of Judaism in Jerusalem and at the temple. Samaritans did and still do consider themselves the true religious inheritors of the, of the practice of Judaism, the true ancient Israelites. They still think of themselves like that today. So Jews and Samaritans do not like each other. That's an important thing to understand as Jesus has this conversation with this woman today. Think Hatfields and McCoys. Think Democrats and Republicans. Think Philadelphia Eagles fans and everybody, right? Right? They just, you know, nobody likes them, right? Got one right here in the front row. So as we read this, you have to think about it from the very beginning. It's, it's shocking. It's at least more than strange when John tells us that Jesus and his disciples on their way north to Galilee decide to go right through the middle of the land of Samaria. Everybody avoided it if they could. It was the shortest route, but not the most popular route to go up north into Galilee. Most devout Jews took the long way around to avoid coming into any kind of contact with the Samaritan people. They were unclean, they were blasphemers, they were too close for comfort. You know, you dislike the family that you dislike more than you dislike anybody else, right? You know, the idea of traveling a long way around to avoid a place reminds me of this rural village in Italy that I read about recently called Calabraro. The village of Calabraro is considered so unlucky that Locals in that region of Italy refer to it as that town, and even saying its name is considered bad luck. There are also rumors that some of the women in the town of Calabraro, which people call that town, were witches. 
supposedly anthropologists and scientists who came to Colorado to study and find these witches soon fell victim to bad luck. Strange illnesses, unfortunate accidents, their cars wouldn't start. So people learned that unless you lived there or had direct personal business to transact in that town called Colorado, you avoided it. You just didn't go there. No one who didn't have to ever, ever drove into or walked into or rode a donkey into this village. But people say any publicity is good publicity, right? The citizens of Colorado found a way to turn their bad luck into profit. They built a tourism campaign around how horrible they were. <laughs> and now thousands of people come every year to participate in festivals that celebrate the shadowy, witchy history of that town. It's really important to remember how shocking it is that John, the gospel writer, whom we're pretty sure is Jewish himself, presents this to Jewish readers, to a Jewish audience, that Jesus, who was super Jewish, uh, who has just been introduced by John as the word made flesh, who could turn water into wine and make anything change into circumstances that would be pleasant and acceptable, would choose this route to go through Samaria. It's not just a random fact, and it's not just a historical fact. It is an author's choice to tell us this so that we get set up for what's going to come next. And this Samaritan holy place, this town of Sikar, Sikar, who knows how to say it, is, the, is a place that claimed to have Jacob's well, a 2,000-year-old reminder at that time of how much Jews and Samaritans differed from each other and hated each other. They both claimed the same religious heritage, the ancient Jewish heritage, but in different ways. It's fascinating that John, the gospel writer, uses this as evidence of the grace of God, that Jesus walks right into trouble, right into that town, to share himself with, to interact with, of all people, a Samaritan. It'd be like you leaving here today and going and talking with a Methodist, the worst. <laughs> they have no theology. They can just sing. That's it. And not just a woman, a Samaritan. And not just a Samaritan woman, but a woman that other Samaritan women wanted to have nothing to do with. And we'll get back to that. Take a look again at what the Bible says. When you're reading the Bible and you want to understand what God's word is, my first suggestion to my students and to anybody is read what's on the page. It's there for a reason. What's there and what's not there? We tend to try to fill in the blanks. Don't. He puts whatever's there for a reason. John, the author, tells us here today, what time of day is it? Don't look down. About noon, right? The sun's high in the sky. Jesus is tired. He sits down to take a rest by this ancient well. When this Samaritan woman approaches with her bucket to get water for the day. And Jesus, I like to think because he wasn't so good at small talk either, skips the small talk and gets right to it. He asks her for a drink of water. Seems simple enough, except for the fact that men didn't talk to women publicly. Jewish men didn't talk to their wives in public, let alone to other women, let alone to Samaritan women, let alone to Samaritan women 
who came to a, come to a well at noon o'clock. Why is it strange to come to a well to get water for the day at noon? Because half the day is over with. She was avoiding the other women, and we know we find out why a little bit later as we read this story and this conversation between the two of them. He, said, she said, he says, give me a drink of water. She says, why are you asking me for water? You're not even supposed to be talking to me. He goes, if you knew who you were talking to, you'd want living water. Well, she says, give me some living water. And that's the central issue of this Lenten season. Do you know who you're talking to? Do you know the gift of God that is right in front of you? And do you know who Jesus is? Let's start with the second question first. To the Samaritan woman, once she sort of realized he was more than just some thirsty guy sitting by the side of the road, Jesus is a prophet, you know, somewhere up there, kind of special at least. She believed maybe he was sent to reveal some truth about God to her, to the world. But she, like we all do, tries to avoid any deeper kind of conversation because, let's face it, she's got a lot to hide. All she says is, I know that the Messiah, who is called Christ, is supposed to be showing up. And when he comes, he will proclaim all things to us. Everything will suddenly be made clear to us. And then Jesus, in response, doesn't kind of play at that level of sort of religious, oh, you know, he's coming, and yeah. Jesus says, that's who I am, the Messiah, the Christ. He uses the same phrase translated in English, I am, that is the name that God reveals to Moses way back in Exodus when Moses asks God's name. I am who I am is the best translation of those ancient Hebrew words. And remember, throughout much of his ministry, certainly in the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus reserves Uh, knowledge of who he is or who he thinks he might be for just his closest followers, people who are really trying to listen to him. In fact, sometimes he tries to prevent them from knowing or revealing his identity and his deity to others. In John chapter 3, which has a very famous verse number 16, when Jesus talks to Nick at night, Nicodemus in the middle of the night, Jesus doesn't reveal his identity to him, and Nicodemus is super religious, super faithful, super searching. He doesn't get it. But in this most unlikely place and to one of the most unlikely persons you could imagine, Jesus chooses to reveal who he is. He is the anointed one, the Messiah. The Greek word for that is Christ. He has the truth. He carries the very presence of God what the Samaritan people have been waiting for, what the Jewish people have been waiting for, what we're all looking for is here. Now, what Jesus means to the world, to all of us, uh, is really so multifaceted, it's hard to sort of capture it. But a classic understanding of what he is to us and who he is uh, is sort of illustrated by the story Uh, about uh, what happened in 1987 when a ferry was crossing the English Channel. Anybody taking a ferry across the English Channel? 
before. I get seasick. I was super sick both times that I did it. It's too long. It made me think of D-Day in a whole different way, just because I was throwing up the whole time. Um, in this, I was going from Belgium to England just like this ferry in 1987, and that ferry this time, and that was only a few years after I last did it, capsized somewhere along in the route from Belgium west toward England. And as parts of the ship began to collapse and sink, at one point, a walkway buckled and started collapsing, leaving an almost six-foot gap that the trapped passengers on the ferry had to negotiate to get to safety. And a six-foot-four man named Andrew Parker did the only thing he knew how to do to help. He stretched his body across the gap and, and demanded and commanded that the passengers cross on his back to safety. This guy named Andrew Parker made himself into a human bridge between the sinking ship and the rescuers. Maybe he was related to Peter Parker, Spider-Man, because the Parker family is very heroic. I don't know. But in this moment, in, this, in whatever, whatever uh, way you think of um, salvation and justification, Jesus is telling the Samaritan woman that he is the bridge between humanity and God and that she is talking to him. And that is a very self-confident thing to say about oneself, not to mention blasphemous. Let's go back to the first question. What is the gift that this Christ, the self-identified presence of God now, this would never happen in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, where Jesus would just come out and say, that's who I am, ding, ding, ding. What is the gift that this Christ brings to her and to us? He says, go get your husband. She goes, I have no husband. He goes, you're right, you're being honest. In fact, you've been married more times than Zsa Zsa Gabor. That's a person, an actress at one time. <laughs> or Kim Kardashian, who's been married a lot? I mean, you know. Um, and the guy you're shacking up with now, he's not your husband. We, I know, I already know. Isn't it scary when people know something about you and don't condemn you for it, don't reject you for it, don't vilify you for it in the way that you fear or maybe even in the way that you deserve. We hide the truth of ourselves. That human tendency is all through this text this morning. Early in John's Gospel, somehow we connect not only the very presence of God, the living word made flesh, uh, with us, but also with who we really are. Being honest about who we are is a gift, and it is a gift that only a few people in our lives are willing to give to us, to accept us as we are. It might be the biggest challenge anybody can put in front of us is to tell the truth about ourselves. Think about last week, we talked about Abram receiving this call from God to get up and go and leave his family and all of his possessions, everything he's worked so hard for, his home, and just go. Or a little bit later in that same worship service last week, we talked about an even tougher call that Abraham, the, the ancestor of our faith, the one who didn't wait to figure out how it was going to work out and am I going to have enough money if I do this and that. He just went. Even when God spoke to him and said, take your son up that mountain and be ready 
if you need to, to sacrifice him. Abraham trusted God, and that was accounted to him as faith. The relationship that God gives us with not only God, God's self, but with ourselves is something we can't earn or figure out or achieve on our own. Because these are symptoms, or these are blessings of abundant life. This, this is what God gives to us because God gives us life to start with. For us to work properly, to be fulfilled, to live as we're meant to live, we need to be in touch with our creator. We need that bridge to be there so we can cross it. And then what we find on the other side is not only Christ, but we find us. And we find out that we're beloved, even though those people say those things about us. And even more importantly, even though we say, through our shame and remorse and regret, so many bad things about us to ourselves. This morning's quote is from Nadia Boltz Weber in a sermon she wrote in March of 2017. Think about what Jesus is offering this woman and to you and to all of us as I read what Nadia Boltz Weber wrote. You want this eternal life? Then it starts with being seen. It starts with the truth, the naked truth of your original wound and your original beauty and every good and every bad thing about you. You have heard it said that water finds its lowest point. Well, living water finds your lowest point. The living water offered by Jesus Christ finds your lowest point. It flows to your original wound, the thing that you spend so much energy trying to heal through all the insufficient ways, relationships, religion, success, more graduate degrees, more therapy, working out. There are a million ways we try to use substitutes for God to try and make sure our damage is not seen. That's what Lent is all about, moving closer and closer to a point where we're willing, like Abram, to sort of jump into this abyss of uncertainty and trust that we're going to be loved when we get there. Kierkegaard called it a leap of faith. Every time we confess on Sunday morning, we're taking that leap because we're being invited to be honest. One of the great commencement traditions at Harvard University, which I tell my wife is a nice secondary safe school. Um, Sarah went there. I guess she couldn't get into Stanford. Um, she's not here, so I can say that. Um, uh, on the morning of Harvard's graduation, seniors gather in Memorial Church to hear the minister offer words of solace and encouragement as they leave the yard to take their places in the world. I'm not going to mention how they wear top hats at their graduation, because I find that hilarious. Um, but anyway, I went to college in California, a more laid-back place. In 1998, the senior class heard the unvarnished truth from the Reverend Peter Gomes, who's now deceased, one of the giants of the last part of the 20, 20th century in Christianity, I think. Uh, he was a minister at Harvard Chapel, author of several books, including The Good Book, uh, was very popular in the late 90s. In his gentle and ringing tones, Peter Gomes uh, always sort of brought to mind a cross between a Shakespearean actor and a TV sitcom character, kind of like a African-American Frasier, I always thought he looked like. Uh, and he always took no prisoners, and he didn't in this case. He said to the graduates, 
you are going to be sent out of here for good, and most of you aren't ready to go. The president is about to bid you into the fellowship of educated men and women, and here Gomes paused and spoke each word slowly for emphasis. You know just how dumb you really are. The senior class at Harvard cheered in agreement. <laughs> and worse than that, Dr. Gomes continued, the world, and your parents in particular, are going to expect that you will be among the brightest and the best, but you know that you no longer can fool all the people, even some of the time. By noontime today, you will be out of here. By tomorrow, you will be history. By Saturday, you will be toast. That's a fact. No exceptions, no extensions anymore. Nevertheless, Dr. Gomes continued and promised, there is reason for you to hope. The future is God's gift to you, not your gift to yourself. God will not let you stumble or fall. God has brought you this far to this place so that you will not be abandoned or left alone and afraid. The God of Israel never stumbles, never sleeps, never goes on sabbatical. Thus, my beloved and bewildered young friends, do not be afraid. In his way, Gomes gave the same message to the senior class at Harvard that Jesus does to this woman at the well and to you and to me. Thanks be to God. Amen.